So this evening, as we continue our series on the book of Psalms, we're turning to Psalm 18. Turn to Psalm 18. And while you're turning to Psalm 18, I just want to remind you that when we started off this series on the Messianic Psalms, we did so by reading and speaking of Psalm 1. But we didn't just start off with Psalm 1, but we looked at the account in Luke 24 where Jesus' two disciples, Cleopas being one and his companion, uh, were recounting the things that had happened. And Christ walked up to them and they again recounted those things that had happened. And they were very sad. And Christ responded by saying or telling them what we find in Luke 24, 26 through 27. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, upon reading or hearing those words, was it not necessary? It occurred to me that we should always follow reading, hearing or reading those words with the question, why was it necessary for Christ to suffer? Well, we know he was and is the only hope of salvation for fallen man. We know that according to Leviticus 17, life is in the blood, and therefore if his goal was to give his life so that we could have ours, he had to shed his blood. We know those things to be true, but sometimes we forget or fail to reflect on another truth or factor. It's found in Hebrews 4.15, which says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Be reminded that in verse 26 of Luke, Jesus not only indicated that the scriptures spoke of him, but he also indicated how they spoke about him as a suffering servant, one who would experience the trials of this life and arise victoriously. When reflected upon, one would have to attribute that rise to the one who deserves all the glory, the honor, and the praise, the one who Jesus never failed to turn to during his walk among men. Now, if we were to keep that which I just stated in mind and ask the question, where would, what would have been a great way for God, rather, to unfold this experiential aspect of Christ in redemptive history? Wouldn't one of the greatest or neatest answers be through a person whom God refers to in his word as a man after God's own heart? One in whom he had specifically entered into a covenant with. Well, guess what? That's exactly what we have here in Psalm 18, a psalm of thanksgiving authored by a man after God's own heart who experienced the trials of life and rose victoriously all due to the sovereign power and presence of the one who covenanted with him, so that in types and shadows he might unfold the story of his only begotten son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now the covenant I'm speaking of is the Davidic covenant, and it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's son will occupy the throne forever and ever, it says. And guess what? Guess what? The entire psalm, this entire psalm, Psalm 50, is in fact found in 2 Samuel. It's chapter 22 of the book of 2 Samuel. Now, as I mentioned, this chapter is 
50 verses long. That's a a bit much for us to read and, and exegete with the time we have before us, but fear not. There's great exegetical news to be, to be had. You see, the entire chapter is break, broken up into three major sections in the first half that are revisited in the second half of the psalm. In the first half, in verses 1 through 3, we can caption, we can caption that first, uh, those set of verses as total praise. And so if you want to write down a heading, that's what you would write down. Total praise. We have, here we have David declaring his love for God and ushering forth his praises towards him. This one recognition of the fact that God had shown himself to be David's all in all. Let's read those verses. David wrote, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord. He is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Here David uses two sets of metaphors to describe who God was to him. One set relates to his military, David's military victories. He refers to to God as his strength, his shield, and the horn of his salvation. Here I'd like to highlight two of these metaphors. First, the shield. Listen to Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3a. O Lord, how many of my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Our Lord is a shield, David says. Here I'm reminded even of Israel after they had been rescued from Egypt and were now being pursued by Pharaoh and and his men. The cloud which was inhabited by God, which stood before the people, moved from before them and went behind them, shielding them from Pharaoh and his people. A couple of weeks ago, I attended Grace Mosaic in Washington, D.C., and uh, Russ Whitfield was preaching on Exodus 12, and when he talked about this cloud moving behind, he said, so you should understand that God has your back. You see, that God shields you from all things. I'm then reminded of Jesus, who after having a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, brought before him so that he could pronounce a sentence of death by stoning on her, did not do so, but instead became that which protected her, He shielded her from the wiles of religiosity so that the effectual power of his grace could have its way in her. In both these cases, the people who witnessed or were recipients of this grace were placed in a position where they could completely trust in God because they experienced the reality that he was their shield. And so God is that same to us. He is our shield. Jesus Christ is our shield. And any failure to recognize or live in this reality grossly impacts one's ability to praise God in the way that David does here in our text. David also says that God is his horn of salvation. We should know that an animal's horn is what is used for fighting, for protection, and securing dominance. In Israel, it became a symbol of of power, of strength, and victory. 
So in scripture, a horn is a literary symbol representing potency and power. All of us were impotent to save ourselves, to merit, have any merit before God, but we have a horn of salvation, as you'll see. So David trusted in God, and thus God's power worked on his behalf over and over again. God was his horn of salvation. Now, at this point, I don't know if David was thinking along the lines that he articulated in Psalm 110, where he wrote, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But I do know on this side of the cross, in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 69, we have and hear these words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has up, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's talking about the birth of Christ, Christ physically coming into the earth. And so Christ is called the horn of salvation. So you see, David might only have known in types and shadow that Christ was the power behind his salvation, but we know it fully and should therefore usher forth live lives that show, that manifest the same heart filled with praise that David had here towards his God. David recognized, again, he's in his older age now, and he's sitting back and he's looking over his life and all the experiences that he's had in his life, and he's recognizing over and over and over again how wonderfully God had acted on his behalf in so many different ways. And every single person in here that is a Christian should and definitely has that same type of testimony. Going back to our text, the second set of metaphors David utilizes relate to the times when he was forced to flee from his enemy, none greater than Saul. He said, God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer and stronghold. So again, for purpose of time and everything else, the one metaphor I'd like us to focus on here is rock. In fact, that metaphor makes up the central theme of this psalm. Before I comment any further on the text itself, here's some interesting, here's some interesting information you should be aware of as we think about David's description of God in this way. I got this from James Montgomery Boyce, who was quoting E.M. Blakelock, who wrote a series of articles entitled New Light on Bible Imagery. Pay close attention to this. Blakelock wrote, wrote, first it is an image for protection, talking about the rock, and shade. In the hot sandy lands of the Bible, the struggle of life against the merciless elements is intense in a way we can hardly appreciate in more temperate climes. When the spring rains come, a light carpet of green, doomed to be scorched by the sun and then covered with sand in just a few short weeks, will emerge on the desert's edge. But set a rock in the sand, and soon a small oasis develops on the boulder's leeward side. The side is protected. The desert's feeble life prospers. We are the feeble people in God, and God is our rock, and we prosper under the shadow of that rock. You get it? So the feeble rock prospers, life prospers under the rock's protection. Similarly, a man traveling through the desert 
during the hottest hours of the day can find shade in the rock shadow and can survive and continue his journey. These ideas are present in verses like Isaiah 32.2, which describes the king as a shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land, protected then by a righteous king. Many weaker people may prosper, yet the king is himself sheltered by God, as David confesses in Psalm 18. It is because the Lord was struck, was his rock, that David thrived. And there's all sorts of other features of a rock that can be communicated here. But here I'd just like to point out one more, its use as a foundation. But before I even get there, however, I want you to hear what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 2 has to say. It says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock, and the rock was Christ. Christ is our rock. Again, the rock that David referred to as Yahweh is here by Paul referred to as Christ. And Jesus goes down the same path then. Now talking about the foundation, speaking in Luke 6, 47 through 49, he says this. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell and the ruin of that house was great. Is your house built on the foundation of Jesus Christ? David's was built on the foundation of God. God was his rock. And because God was his rock, he was protected. That is what he's saying. And on this side of the cross, we walk on the foundation, live, move, have our being on the foundation of that rock. He is our fortress. And that fortress is built on the rock. So in these first three verses, David understanding all that's been said, albeit in types and shadows are related as related to Christ, praises God as we should for who he is, who God is, and who he has revealed himself to be. In the second section of this psalm, it's verses 4 through 19, which we'll caption as God's deliverance. David recounts the time when God delivered him from his enemies. He also does the same thing in verses 30 through 45. Remember I said that the first three sections are repeated again in the second half. One key line I'd like you to notice here is found in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. David then first reached out to secular sources. David didn't think that the source of his problems were grounded in outside forces, okay? Or tried to seek his solutions through those things. He cried out to who? To God for help. He 
He first cried out to God who made him, knew him, and loved him. The God who was completely able to do something about his situation, no matter how hopeless it might have seemed to David, the God that he served was able, was fully powerful, omnipotent. Here there's an echoing in, in David calling out to God, crying out to God. There's an echoing of Exodus 2, 23, 24, which says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned. In other words, now they're under a heavy trial. Things are happening to them. Because of their slavery and cried out for help, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, it says, and God knew. And you know what? You know what happened then? The same thing that David describes here in verses 17 through 19. God moved heaven and earth to rescue his people. Smoke went up from his nostrils, verse 8 says. You don't want to get God angry messing around with his people. He bowed the heavens and, and came down, verse 9 says. The God who created the entire universe condescended and came down on behalf of the people whom he loved and called his own. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, moving heaven and earth, I said, verse 13. And thus he rescued me from my strong enemy, David said, and from those who hated me. And that's also a picture of what happened with Christ. Jesus cried out. He satisfied God's wrath. And then God moved and rescued him, delivered him, resurrected him. David's God spared no expense in delivering him from the hands of Goliath. If you remember, David, when he went before Saul and he told Saul, I'm going after this guy. So how are you going to do this? He said, hey, God delivered me from a lion and from a bear. He again looked back at his experience and said, this is what God did for me. This is not what I accomplished on my own, but this is the God of all powerful God. He gave me his strength, and I was able then to deliver, to hurt, to harm, to take down a lion and a bear. And so as I come before Goliath, I don't come before him in my own strength. I don't come before him looking for anything. I come before him in the name of of the Lord because he is trying to mess with God's people. And so God delivered him. Let me just sidebar real quick and tell you that this past Saturday we, you know, went back to playing basketball. And so, you know, I love basketball. And so 6'8 Christian, you know, this new youth director was in there, right? And so I moved to the right and I moved to the left and I passed the man that was in front of me and I got before Christian, again, put the ball through my left, and I faked this way and faked that way. I was looking good. And I put the ball up, and Christian just put his hand out like this and blocked the shot. <laughs> so I just want to put him on notice while I'm talking about Goliath that I'm walking with a slingshot next week. <laughs> All right? So God spared no expense. And these verses then comprise. Well, let me, let me go back a little bit here. God has not spared any expense in delivering us from our greatest enemy, all right, through Christ. And our greatest enemies are sin, death, hell, and the grave. And you know why that is? You know why he did that? It's because of his great love for us, a love that was so great that it moved him to give us 
his only begotten son, who came and could rightly utter these words that we find in verses 20 through 24. Look at verses 22, 24. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes. I did not put away any from me, not a jot, not a tittle. I fulfilled it all. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has recorded me, rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. As you see those verses, you know that David did not fulfill those things perfectly. These verses actually, uh, by the way, comprise our third section in this chapter, and I'll title that God's response to obedience. In light of all we know that David did in his life, we should understand that he could only, David did utter these words, but he could only utter these words through the forgiveness he had received from God. So with that in mind, David communicates the fact that there is a direct correlation between our obedience and God's blessing. In addition to what we just read in verses 20 through 24, listen to what verses 25 through 27 said. With the merciful you show mercy. You're merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. David is in effect saying that as he looks back again over his life, he can say that God's manifest goodness towards him was correlated to his obedient responses to God's guiding in his life. Then again, this again connects itself to what Jesus said about building your house on a rock. Living obediently before him produces blessing. And let me just throw in here real quick. I am not talking about a prosperity gospel. I am not saying that you can just say this before God, live this way and pull a lever, and God has to, to move on your behalf. That is some sort of quid pro quo. That is not what I'm saying. Generally speaking, the principle is those who obey God will be blessed. And let me tell you, the apostle Paul went through beatings and stripes and everything else. But in the midst of all that, the spirit that he had, the joy that he had is greater than any physical thing that he could have had at that time. So even in the midst of his greatest trials, David, Saul, everyone, you and I, even in the midst of our greatest trials, if we are walking obediently before God, that which we will feel in terms of his grace would push us up and above anything physical in this life. And in that sense, we are always blessed. Physically, what is physically, mentally, spiritually, you are always blessed if you are in God. It's either true that all things work together for good or it's a lie. And I say that let every man be a liar, but let God be true. So again, again, speaking from a messianic perspective, David could only say the words found in verse 20 through 24 through the prison of the forgiveness he had received. But if offspring... Mentioned in verse 50 and in, in 2 Samuel, our Lord could other them because they were 100% true of him without exception, without qualification. He asked the question, who convicts me of sin before the Pharisees? Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. And the centurion at the foot of the cross 
knowing Pilate's declaration and witnessing what took place on the cross, bellowed, truly, this is the Son of God. Those words carried with them a connotation of an acknowledgement of innocence in the face of all charges. Our Lord walked in perfect obedience and was rewarded for it. And you know what his reward was? You and I. You and I were his reward. Look at verses 4 and 5. It reads, the court of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shield entangled me. The sneers of death confronted me. Again, David metaphorically could state these words in describing his experiences. But the greater David, Christ, actually experienced what they describe as Philippians 2 tells us that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Going back to our text, after David recounts his experience and communicates the fact that his blessings were a direct correlation of his obedience, he returns to his posture of praise. In verse 46, he says, the Lord lives and blessed, blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of my salvation. David, why this posture? Because he gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. He exalted me above those who rose against me. He delivered me from the man of violence. That's verse 48. And we know that spiritually when we talk about Christ, he was delivered from the clutches of the enemy. Satan knew, had no idea what he was doing when he messed with Christ. And for these things, David goes on to say, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. You've delivered me time and time again. As I look back over my life and I think things over, all I can say is you've delivered me time and time again. You've rescued me time and time again. You've exalted me. Again, these verses refer both to David and to his offspring, Christ. David was exalted above all his earthly enemies. Christ was exalted above all things so that in his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. God's steadfast love was manifested to David, causing him to be blessed with a plethora of earthly blessings. John 3.35 tells us concerning Christ that the Father loves the Son And thus has given him all things into his hand. So the lesser David had plethora of heaven of earthly blessings. The the, the greater David has heaven and earth given into his hand. Regarding verse 49. Going on to verse 49. Where we read, I will praise you among the nations. We should understand that the nations included the Gentiles who were far off. Separated from God they were. David was exalted as a light to all, including the Gentiles. Jesus died for them, for you and for me. He lives and is our rock. So verse 46 is our testimony as well. It's our testimony of and bestowal of blessing upon the Lord who has been so good to us. I don't remember if I ever shared this with you, but when I was 18... I decided I had accomplished enough. I was great in sports and other stuff, just not classroom, because like when my math class was taking place, I was under the bleachers gambling. So, and I did well in the gambling, you know what I mean? So all the things that I engaged in, I did really well in. 
So the thought entered into my mind, again, I'm 18, if I die today, people will think very well of me. I'll be highly esteemed. And as a result of that stinking thinking, I started engaging and hanging out with people who had stinking thinking, you know, also. And started doing stuff like picking, starting fights. You know, I'd be playing basketball and just punch someone just because I felt like it, because they touched me too hard or something. Started going out and, you know, catching the, the pay vans or the bus, the buses that you pay for, and the three of us would dare the bus driver to try to make us pay. And doing other stuff, just crazy things. The end of that is one of them is, was buried upside down in the stand with his head, his feet sticking out of the sand. The other one is still in jail today. God could have caused me to be lost continually, to be taken out continually. I haven't even begun to tell you the stuff that God delivered me from in my life. And then when I got my life together in the military and people tried, just like Haman, try to take out Mordecai, and he got the results of what he tried to do. Same thing, time and time again. And then there's things that happened in my life as I look back over my life and I can say, oh my goodness, it had to be God that did that. It had to be God even for me to be here in terms of the call to this church. And I am saying to you that the same thing is there in your life. It might not be as magnified as it is in mine, but it, God has been good to all of us, more than we can believe or imagine. And that's what's going on here. David sees that, and God is using it to show that God has blessed us tremendously through Jesus Christ. We had absolutely no hope of anything, but our rock protects us in a dry land, in a desert. A rock keeps us in a dry land. There is no, no doubt in my mind that God laughed at my ignorance and then stepped up on my behalf through Jesus Christ. And the same can be said of you. So today as I look back, I can say he is my rock. He is your rock. He is our fortress and he is our deliverer. He is the horn of our salvation. If you have not called Christ your Lord and your Savior, if you have not bowed at the knee, you cannot say these things. But perchance the fact that you are hearing me now mean that God has also delivered you because you are his elect. And even now he's calling you to himself. And I tell you, get on your knees and repent and turn to Christ, the living rock. Can you say the same? Has your eyes been opened to the reality of God's goodness, his mercies which are renewed each and every single life? Have you been renewed in that sense? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony that David has given us concerning your goodness towards him. We thank you that in types and shadows you reveal that the greater David, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, has done this and even more for us. For David could not save us from our sins. He could not keep us under his shadows because he 
died and could not live forevermore on this earth. But you live forevermore. And it won't just be on earth, but in heaven you have control, power over all things. You are our horn of our salvation. And so we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for rescuing us in the days when we were dumb, stupid, and lost. We thank you for calling us your own. We know it's not anything that we've done, but it's purely your grace and your mercy. So thank you. We bless your name in the same way David did. Bless us with hearts that we be filled with gratitude and praise so that as we are called to worship, it will not be empty or in vain, but we will indeed be lifting up your name because we see you for who you are. Would you do these things to the praise of your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.